Welcome back to part two of my interview with Al Miller. My name is Marcy Sklove, and this is Going Deeper. Al and I have been talking, uh, setting the stage of his early life to now put him in this place of the war in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, it's the summer of 1968. Summer of 69. 69. And Woodstock uh, is happening. Woodstock is happening. So, yeah, what what would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, well, don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, ta I have talked about this stuff in classrooms all up and down the East Coast for approaching 30 years. Wow, for the Veterans Education Project. Yeah, on my the, own the, and with Veterans Education yeah. Project, yeah, yeah, a lot. So I'm used to talking about this in front of uh, groups of people Yeah. from as many as four or five hundred uh, to, you know, five or six. Yeah. So I have a level of comfort and I'm going to talk about things that are really difficult okay. and they will bring up emotion for me. Yeah. But I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, yeah. and um, just to warn viewers, yeah. listeners, um, that it is the most, I think, difficult, one of the most difficult parts of you being a human being. Yeah. And that, for me, would be taking another human being's life in proximity of where you and I are in relationship at right. this close proximity. Wow. So that their eyes and their expression, their voice, and everything is uh, immediate. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I went into um, a small dwelling in the jungle that was about um, maybe it was eight feet by ten feet. The whole thing. Maybe it was smaller than that. And I'd been sent to lead a patrol into this place to look for enemy activity, mm -hmm. quote unquote the enemy. And uh, I stepped through the opening looking for booby traps, trip wires, uh, as I went through trying to discern with some light coming through if there was anything being illuminated. And then I'm checking the interior and there's a young man in the uniform of a North Vietnamese Army mm -hmm. regular, silver buckle with a silver star on it indicating he's a lieutenant asleep mm -hmm. in a hammock. And I'm so terrified, you know, I've been in training for a year to, for this moment, really, yeah. to confront the enemy. And, and the startling part of that moment was he is a boy yeah. and he looks like a human being, you know. This idea of the swarthy, you know, dark Asian uh, soldier, you know, is like, oh, this, this guy's just a kid like me. Yeah. Uh, of course, I don't have time to do that kind of reflection in the moment, sure. you know, and I'm trying to assess where his weapons are, and I can't see them, and I assume they're in the hammock with him. And the reason I make those assumptions is that we're trained, I mean, you, you're severely abu abused if you ever go anywhere without your weapon. Okay. You know, so that you're ready at all times. So I assume that that's true for him. And um, 
So then I, t I wake him up, and the only f Vietnamese, slang Vietnamese French that I know is Lade Papasan, and I'm told that that means come here. Hmm. And this is an insult to wave to somebody in Southeast Asia, and this is the appropriate way to oh, beckon someone. Yeah. Palm down. So I'm doing that, and he comes awake, and I'm at this distance with my M16. I've gone to full automatic, and um, it, that's what he comes awake from a dream world of yeah. two. Right? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know how easily we dream, so I'm assuming he was in that state. Yeah. Um, and I know I, I, I can talk about it like this way, but I have grieved this for 40 years plus, yeah. 47 years, and I still grieve it. Of course. You know, I still have to attend it. Now this is called moral injury, and the people who you know, talk about the designation say that this never goes away, the wow. grief uh, with moral injury. And um, it is an appropriate reaction uh, a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Yeah. Okay. So um, he he tries to set up. He's wobbly in the hammock, and I'm afraid that he's got at least a handgun in the hammock with him. And I'm measuring how long it would take for him to grab mm. grab the handle and turn it and squeeze it around into my chest. Yeah. And there's a young man who uh, comes in behind me, and he says, Al, do him. Do him. Wow. Uh, an American soldier. And I'm not at that point, but I'm scared, and my, yeah. my knees are shaking. And I'm not trying to excuse myself, yeah. but I'm just trying to say this is the intensity sure. of what it's like. And uh, he makes a move over to reach for something, and I think that's it. He's going for it. Uh, and, I, and then he's starting to turn his hand and bring it back up. And I go off. I, I pull the trigger. Sure. Uh, and uh, the rifle bucks against me two or mm -hmm. three times. It's on full automatic. I stop. He's fallen out of the hammock. And he's continuing to talk to me ever since he woke up in Vietnamese. And I can understand none of it. Right. So I've hit him now three times in the chest. And he's still talking to me. Oh my God. And I'm trying to do, I'm going, so the first round goes bam. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the worst thing yeah. I could have ever done. And by that time, mm. two, three, four more rounds have gone off. And I take my finger off of it, and you know, he's, he's dying. Yeah. And he continues to talk to me. And uh, I'm trying to create justifications. I'm calling him gook, slant eye, slope mm. in my head. And they're all just kind of fracturing, falling apart, I understand why. Mm -hmm. Because they're meant to dehumanize, and then sit. Watching him die, is, uh, I can't think of anything more humanizing, yeah. right? right? I'm seeing my own death. I'm seeing his death, and I guess I'm totally relating now to this human wow. being. And I can feel that this, you know, we're brothers in this arbitrary yeah. uh, sense uh, of being sent by our countries to fight each other. And, um, you know, I, I see the words that I'm trying to use don't work, so I, I try, I'm a Christian, he's a communist. And then immediately it's like, you, you understand, this is not a Christian act. Yeah. And, uh, so that, that falls away. Right. And, uh, I, I mean, it's just, 
I'm crashing emotionally. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, by this moment, I can't hear what's really going on around me, and sight's kind of turned into this green kind of light, because yeah. I'm in shock. Yeah. And so I slip out, and um, platoon leader and platoon sergeant come in, and um, they make the assessments they make. When I step out the door, I don't know where to go yeah. with everything I'm carrying. And I hear, <laughs> and this is insane, in one realm, I hear a stone say, I can take your weight. So I head towards that stone. Yeah. And I get up behind it. And this guy's, this young man's voice is going down what I call the scale of living hmm. as it diminishes and he's dying. And, um, phew, yeah. It always will affect me, yeah. of course, you know, and it should. Um, and wanting to have an open heart, it means that you yeah. experience what the heart experiences, right? So, um, I sense my grandmother so much, um, her picture's here, that I turn to look for her, and she's been dead for two years. Yeah. And I say, why are you here? Why are you here now? Not expecting an answer. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I should kind of shut down some more. And in a few minutes, they bring me these pictures from his breast pocket that I described to you, but we weren't on. Yeah. So um, there are pictures of this young man that I've just killed with an older woman, his mother, I assume. In every picture, there's three of them. She's looking intimately and mm. directly at his face with a grave look of concern oh. on her face. Yeah. And then it expands through the immediate family to a extended family, and they say, here, you want these souvenirs? Oh, God. And, um, you know, I look at them to assess, and uh, I just, you know, I can't keep these pictures. Uh, I, they'll kill me yeah. if I keep them. And um, so, but I have that, their images just burned into my mind. Yeah. And I'm looking at the mother's image, and I see her fear and realize I am the projection of her fear. I am her enemy imagination of what her front yeah. son is confronted with. I'm that. And I'm the reverse of what I went into the room with. Right. Of his, he is my enemy, and now right. I am his enemy. Wow. I am the embodiment Gosh. of what it means to be the enemy. And I have done the, the deed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's wow. just that extrapolates, you know, we come to that moment from the numbness of childhood, the numbness yeah. of familial culture that doesn't know how to express emotion, right. to um, just the radical swing in like seconds yeah. of the capacity of human feeling. Yeah. You know, all the way from one extreme to the other. Right, exactly. Right. right. So, wow. that was like. Um, Maybe my third week in Vietnam. Gosh. But prior to that was my first patrol, and a young man who I'd gotten to know named Daniel, and mm -hmm. I was looking for a place to observe. I'm trying to move this kind of quickly and not give much fine. time for yeah. emotional reflection. But so um, we were looking for a place to observe a valley, and I found an impact zone of mortars. 
that had cleared enough of the ridge for us to set up as a group and observe the valley below us. And as I was going up, there was a hole in the side of the trail, and it was muddy, it rained, and there was this hole that's probably like this. And um, the hole in the ground says, stay away from me. Wow. And I'm like, okay. So I make, you know, like an eight foot, 10 foot pass around it. And um, my mother said, you know, don't ever tell anybody what you yeah. just told me. Right. So I have this um, tension. Yeah. Um, this, whatever's there, made an impression on me. Yeah. And I avoid it. So the rule of the jungle is, if the man in front of you walks a certain path right. and nothing happens to him, you put your feet in the same place. Sure. Right? So you're not going to hit any uh, buried ordnance or anything like that. Landmines. Or yeah, and he's cleared it for tripwires by going through ahead of you. So I go up, I make that swing around it, I pick up the patrol behind me and say, all right, let's go up, I found a place, and I make that eight, ten foot sweep around the hole. Yeah. So three or four days before that on stand down, we'd given the boy named Daniel a machine gun yeah. for his birthday, yeah. which is a 25 pound gun. And he's carrying maybe 300 pounds of ammo, which is another oh. 10 or 15 pounds. So he's carrying 40 pounds extra over what everybody else is carrying. And then we're on an off-camera slope, and he's trying to negotiate that, and he's sliding down towards the hole in. So I stop, catch his eye, and say, are you okay? You know, just, are you okay? Yeah. And he nods, I'm good. I turn back around, looking for a place to put his gun, and the world blows up. Oh. Just so dirt's flying, shrapnel's flying. So immediately you check yourself out. Yeah. So I'm okay, I'm not hit. And then the guy behind Daniel sets up, he's got a sucking chest wound where he got hit. And he's, he's ready to cry and screaming for a medic and I'm the only one who's moving because everyone else is afraid that there's more booby traps. Yeah. That's, a, that's what we've hit, but I don't think it was. So I go over to him, put plastic over the hole in his chest, tie him off, and there's a radio operator on the other side of where Daniel was. And I, um, he's got a little hole underneath where his radio stopped. And uh, turns out that he has a collapsed lung, but it looks like a pinhole. Hmm. And um, somebody comes up beside me, another NCO, and he says, Al, who's, stand who's laying on the ground? And I say, nobody. Yeah. It's a, it's a rotten log, leave it alone. That's what I said to him. And he said, no, it's not, look. And so I jump, I grab him, pull him over to me and say, God damn it, leave us the hell alone. Yeah. And he said, you gotta look. And I looked down and I could see the machine gun muzzle that we had given Daniel and oh. Daniel's curly hair next to it. Oh. So that happened in my yeah. first operation as yeah. a NCO in Vietnam. And then that incident in the hooch happens about three weeks later. Wow. And, um, and you had to keep going for how much longer? Um, like two and a half more months. <sighs> and that's when you know, the combat really started right at the end, where we were really fighting every yeah. day for five days. Yeah. Yeah. And by the end of that, I was ready to just you know shoot me yeah. and went out of here. So that's what come to this poem okay. that was written in the perspective of being in the hospital okay. in Japan for a month and a half. Gunshot wound in my shoulder, fragmentation wounds in my right side of my head, yeah. which I like to say 
didn't affect me. Mm. Didn't affect me. Wow. Didn't affect me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bad humor works really well in my family. That's okay. <laughs> it's just a way of shaking it off. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. So this is, I grew up in a small town called Gelsberg. And so the poem starts with, I want to go back to Gelsberg and hear the bobwhite in the fence row west of the barn where the black locusts grow. Smell the earth digging sassafras, meadowlarks calling from the knee-high wheat grass, the birds with the black V on their throat, the bright yellow vest of courtship on their chest, and their song like crystal bells rung together, slurring notes melting into the other quiet. The river low, warm, carp backs in the air, alfalfa just mown, drying in the fields, milo and sorghum standing, their arm leaves of corn scratching the wind, and one flight of blackbirds that lasted for days, a black rope of wingbeat threads and grackle voices, and the time to watch. The perfected slowness of a porch swing and the old, tired, familiar voices. I want to go back to Galesburg before this Demerol wears off. Hmm. And I have to turn against this stiff linen over this plastic mattress cover hmm. before the ache makes me look at the rest of these torn broken, their eyes telling before I look at them what they see in me, before I have to think again how the bones felt breaking, how the flesh felt tearing, how I hope I'm alive. Casual poem. How, how did you, well, I think it's just such a long process is the answer. Mm. Go, how did it start to unravel mm. in kind of a healthy way, you know? Well, it didn't for a long time. Yeah. You know, I, um, I came back to a marriage and just couldn't yeah. function. And just said, you know, I really, since the day I left the army, I want to take off. I don't know where I want to go, yeah. but I just want to go. And so I did that and went, ended up in Lake Tahoe. Um, worked there and spent a lot of time, you know, with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Self-medicating. Self-medicating, yeah. yeah. And um, oh, that Christmas of that year met Two of my brothers are therapists in San Francisco. We were sitting in Golden Gate Park hmm. in the swings, swinging and talking, and I just started sobbing. Yeah. And I had no idea why. Wow. And they had no idea, you yeah. know, what to do, what to do with, with it. Um, so. I continued kind of that way for a long time. And um, I got remarried like in 75 yeah. to the mother of my children, Maggie and Ben. And uh, in later years, I went back to her and said, what was it like? Because I was having a lot of 
flashbacks and nightmares. Yeah. And I'd wake up from those just terrified. I'd be back in the war and be back fighting the moments where I, you know, all of it. Right. And um, she said, well, you know, it was bad uh, for about the first year, and then when our daughter Maggie was born, it got better. Mm. Oh, that's so sweet. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of things. Um, I can remember talking to the same person about the stories of Vietnam, like I just shared with you, and yeah. she was just, I don't want to hear it. Right. I don't have any way of associating to what you're saying. Yeah. So I would appreciate it if you didn't tell me. Um, so, you know, yeah. you don't. Um, and I can remember a good friend who was a psychologist uh, at Utah State University for a long time, lighting a packet of firecrackers and throwing them in his garage. And I was yeah. sitting with my back to the garage. Oh. And when they started, I, I took off, jumped the fence, before I even you know, began to assess what was really going on. Yeah. It was just the reflex. Sure. And my brother saw that I was so convinced that we should get out of there, he went to. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think about that. Mm. I think about that a lot. As I said earlier, you know, this is the day after Orlando. Right. And uh, I think about people who've been through war like you have. Mm. And then you wake up and you hear a story that last night there was this shooting mm. in a movie theater, in a, in a, a club, a you know. Club. And what must come up, the PTSD that must come up for so many people in our country, mm. you know, who've, who've had trauma like that. So it's, yeah. it's just intense. Yeah. yeah. You know, boy, it's just a big knot, you know, and how to yeah. tease it all apart. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. yeah, how to tease it apart and also how to... Reflect. And somehow... All that you've been able to offer others right. about the reflections, the learnings, the teachings that you've, you know, experienced, what you've learned from it, and yeah. I, so we don't we don't really have time to talk about this play that you all did, um, well, but the, I, I, the objectification of the other is what yeah. comes to mind, yeah, in. Um, how dangerous that is. That's right. And that's exactly how we were trained to say, gook, never Vietnamese. Right. Always gook, slant eye slope. Derogatory dehumanization. Right. And of course, you have to be dehumanized first yourself before you can project dehumanization onto another human being. Oh, interesting. And uh, it is part of the military training. And you can read it in uh, David Grossman's book, On oh. Killing. Yeah. And he's an army colonel, army psychologist, army historian, and he writes about it. And on page 323, first paragraph, he talks about the intentions of training and how successful it is in dehumanizing and creating someone who's prepared to shoot. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so objectification, you know, and I think it's a it's how it's coming up in our political process yeah. and the way people are being called out for race, gender, um, uh, religious beliefs, all of that is objectification, right. which is uh, 
a, a really dangerous strategy. Yeah. And if I have you know, political views about this, that this is where we've been going for a long time, yeah. when we blame and shame and criticize each other until it's, uh, there's something that gets accepted in that. Wow. And it leads to um, someone being able to objectify someone about their sexuality to the point of being able to kill them. Right. You know, and it, it just breaks my heart yeah. to have the experience to know what it means on both sides. Wow. To know what it feels like to be shot, to feel the life force in your body draining out of you, yeah. and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And what it feels like to be on the other end when the realizations of your actions, yeah. and you feel that what you've done to others wow. when you're shot. Yeah. And there's a moment in there before death occurs when I, mm, I think the possibility of reflection exists yeah. and the redemption possibility exists. What? That, you know, I was knocked unconscious and, and, and yet um, the voice in my head continued yeah. a conversation about in, that I heard, isn't it interesting how you've chosen to live your life? So my suggestion is that Death may not be the end point huh. of the conversations we're involved in. Interesting. But they change a lot yeah. when you leave the body and the body's sensations. The, the conversation changes a lot is what you're saying. Yeah, the fear goes away yeah. and the ideas of projections and you can see in your life review how you, those fail. You know, the word that came into my mind when you were describing killing that man was a, a sort of sacredness. And um, there, I, in my own experience of being with people when they die, you, you're in an a environment that is quite sacred. It's palpable. Absolutely. And then adding all these things into it at the same time, I just can't even imagine the right. intensity. Yeah, so that waking up to that yesterday morning was just, um, you know, created a lot of emotion. Yeah. Crying, sobbing, yeah. reflection. Uh, yeah. Al, I almost feel like I'd like to invite you to come back again. There's so many things we didn't get to. I wanted to talk about your beautiful furniture that you make and... Mm more about your writing, um, so to be continued, possibly. <laughs> well, Marcy, it's delightful to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Sure, yeah. sure. I'm so, sorry, the draft of the poem I read was <laughs> 20 years old. Oh, no. And it's redrafted. It's much, it's different. Wow. Well, it was pretty powerful. Well, thank you. Very, very beautiful. So thank you all for joining us. Um, I do want to make a little pitch for Amherst Media. I was uh, very happy to have the opportunity recently to train on how to run the cameras and do the filming for some of the shows and the meetings and everything that Amherst Media takes care of for our town. And it was actually a lot of fun. I really recommend 
anyone who's viewing to please think about coming in and having a training and then being part of the, the volunteer team. And with that, I'll close. Thank you for joining us and going deeper.